Hi, I'm Eve. I'm from the east end of Long Island, New York. Growing up, there was one wild animal I came across constantly, deer. Half of the people want to see them vaporized, the other half won't let you touch a little hair on their head. This is a podcast about deer and people, and how in one unique community, these two species are bound in a web of conflict that has been decades in the making. We know that hunting works. These folks created the problem. It makes me want to cry. It's like, how do we undo this? You got to do anything and everything you can to win this battle. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. You can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to The Buzz, brought to you by the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Spanky McGee. Spanky <laughs> McGee. And I'm Tom Knezic. You know, that's always such a mouthful. Yeah. I don't know. I just got goofy. I'm Fran Chismar, actually. Not Spanky McGee. You can call me Spanky McGee. Yeah. All right, Spanky. And today we're buzzing into episode 95. And uh, Oh, it's actually 97. 97. Episode 97. <laughs> Guess right. I forgot to update that. <laughs> I was gonna say I thought we were a little closer to a hundred than, uh, yeah. than that, but 90, we're pretty close. Pretty close. We are one more buzz outside of this one. One more buzz yeah. after this until we hit our hundredth episode. Uh, you know, I, I obviously I was hoping that the hundredth episode would be a buzz, which it's not, because I wanted it to be some kind of celebration mm-hmm. of a hundred episodes. So I don't know what to do or what yeah. we should do. If we should just have a normal episode or if we should do like a rooted discussion to talk about yeah, um, the, the show. I haven't given it much thought. Maybe we should give <laughs> no, it a little thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been busy. I, You know, it's obviously it's mid-March, which is the beginning of the crazy season mm-hmm. in the nursery industry. But it's been crazier than normal. It was a very yes, busy yeah. winter um, and it's, it's ramping up a little bit earlier. So um, typically we're just starting to see like a change in – in pace but it's already it, it's already affecting <laughs> already affecting us which reminded me i needed to turn off our uh put the, put the phone on do not disturb oh, so it didn't ring in here before we're I forgot. so i i know we've been using the the beginning of buzz episodes to kind of follow up so i wanted to take a moment to follow up and and ask you do you have lyme's disease i i don't <clears throat> believe i do but it, right. i think it's way still too early to tell all right it says it can take like a couple months before you really know um, I didn't go to a doctor because I never developed that rash that they said that I guess what I was reading is that typically will happen that bullseye rash um, and you'll typically see it pretty soon. not getting like any other symptoms like migraines or um, well <laughs> I wouldn't say I am but I think uh, I would say I guess I wouldn't say I'm not. I wouldn't say I have migraines, but I get like slight headaches. And I'm like, oh, is that from Lyme disease? <laughs> it's only been what two or three weeks. It's been about two. It weeks. hasn't been too long, but um, you know, I, the tick wasn't even in that that long. That was the big thing. The tick was only in maybe fourteen hours or so. It wasn't like it was yeah. in there for a long time. And like I'm, I'm 
felt like a little congested this morning. I'm like, oh, am I getting Lyme disease or is it allergies? Or well, is it- you know, I never experienced a migraine until yeah. I had Lyme disease. And then I, I started experiencing like pretty intense mm-hmm. migraine. I had one migraine that lasted for over 24 hours and I had to go to the hospital and they were doing CAT scans. And it, like it literally took like 36 hours to break this yeah. migraine. The other thing I wanted to point out was we did get uh, one of our listeners – commented in the native plant healthy planet facebook group about the difference between london plane tree and uh american sycamore which you had asked me on the last show and i couldn't quite remember and as soon as she listed it like one of the it is a, a little bit difference in the leaves but london plane tree fruits in pairs mm-hmm. and american sycamore is singular fruit and as soon as she wrote it, I was like, wow, you know, I learned that probably like in 1999 when I first started at mm-hmm. Princeton. And it's amazing the information you lose when you don't use it. Like I would have never have ever just yeah. recalled that on my own. But yep. I really appreciate it. Meg actually did a little bit of research and, and gave mm-hmm. some great information. We're really thankful to yep. kind of set us straight because like like we say all the time, we're no experts. So Yeah, and then my brother had chipped in some stuff, some differences that he knew as well, but yes. I don't remember what they were. Yeah, um, I guess I could find his text message to us <laughs> and actually look that up. But no, he he actually pointed out a couple differences to us. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but I invited him to be a guest on the Native Plant Everyday podcast because I think oh, he good. would be yeah. a, a good person to to join us for a week. So um, while Tom is looking that up, I we did put a poll on the Facebook group about whether or not my voice has changed, and it was split eight eight. And but we did get I did get a lot of emails from our colleagues that listen that felt that my voice has changed. But I have to be honest, now that I'm a couple weeks removed, I don't feel that my voice has <laughs> changed. I felt early on there was like a little bit of a difference and now I've kind of feel like I've lapsed right back to where I was. So uh I guess everyone kind of feels the same. It was eight to eight vote. Uh but if you were to total up all the the emails it was probably more like 12 I, to 8 I voted that uh no. that it didn't change initially i felt it did if i had to if you were to ask me right now i'd say no mm-hmm. it didn't change yeah uh going back to the the london plains steve my brother chimed in said that uh london plane trees have a more greenish tinge of the bark bark and um sycamores have more witching on the branches all right so yeah yeah, it's a lot of great information, so we appreciate everyone following up and uh, wanting to share that information with us. Uh, we have a very uh, – a large amount of knowledgeable listeners, which I, yes, we I do. appreciate. Yeah. And I actually appreciate your brother listening. Uh, yeah, me too. So, Every once um, in a while, he'll just start like shooting me all these like texts about things that we said that were wrong or things <laughs> that he didn't know or things that, that he thought were really cool and saying, oh, yeah, you should ask this. I'm like, well, Steve, we talked to this person two weeks ago, so I don't, I don't know if I can still follow up in, in live form. But um, yeah, so that's uh, always that's nice a, to hear. Always get great. Those, that feedback. Always great feedback. And speaking of feedback, we've been getting a large amount of five star reviews. We're we're just three reviews shy of a hundred on yeah, Apple right 97. now. Which, so uh, we appreciate that, and we're going to go into that a little bit later. But just remember, uh, up until episode one hundred, so really, you only have. This episode, uh, ninety eight, ninety nine, to get your reviews mm-hmm. in if you want to be considered for that twenty ounce uh, Yeti tumbler mm-hmm. with yep. the MagSafe lid, which which we're all big fans of. <laughs> so, um, what do you think? You ready for that's up? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. That's hot. 
Huh. I actually had the soundboard prepared for a change. It's <laughs> it's kind of nice. Uh, so I, I'll go first if you're okay with that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I got my first glimpse of May Apple kind of breaking through the ground. It's we're starting to hit that time of the year, which is exciting when you're starting to see signs of life. Um, you know, I last year I think my that's hot at this time was uh, skunk cabbage because I had skunk cabbage on my property, mm-hmm. and uh, I always got excited when that came up. So it was nice to see May Apple starting to break through the soil, uh, which is also called American mandrake, and it's uh, Podophyllum peltatum. If if you're curious mm-hmm. about the botanical, um, it is a woodland species, so you mainly see it in woodland cover. Uh, it blooms in April with a white bloom, but a lot of the times. Uh, that bloom is covered by the leaves, which is like a, a 12 to 18 inch umbrella shaped leaf, and it will hide the flower. That flower gives way to fruit that is edible. You can make jellies from it and preserves. Mm. Um, medium moisture. So it's, uh, I, you know, typically I see it in more upland woods or um, more Piedmont woods where we're mm-hmm. in coastal plain. We don't see it as much, uh, but like a Crystal Lake Park, it's the, more of the outcrops, like the mm-hmm. the higher overlooks of the lake, is where you tend to see yeah. the patches yep. a little bit, the lower patches. So I was just real excited about that. It's uh, USDA zone three three through eight, uh, and it's just to me, it's one of those spring ephemerals that I I really like seeing popping mm-hmm. up. So yeah, very cool, and I'm excited for May apples since we got that uh, that tip from Joe Cermelli. But I don't remember what the other tree was. I'll have to go back and listen. I think it was that's where tulip. he was finding. I think it was, I think it was tulip, tulip poplar, poplar. And May apple. When he found those combinations uh, in the in the woods, that's where he would find morels. And that morel season is coming up in a couple months. Yeah. I've never found one. My brothers found a handful in New Jersey. He found when he was living in the Midwest. He found a bunch more. But all right, so we're going to talk after the podcast where the May apples I was just describing at the park. Mm-hmm. There's liriodendron there also. So I'll give you some tips of where yeah. – or we can even make a little field trip after work think, one day. Yeah, I think we're going to have to. All yeah. right. All so, right. It's, it's not a not a far walk. But what do you got this week? Uh, mine is on the cerulata. Nice. And, uh, and that's also smooth alder. And it's a small multi-stem shrub. Um, it uh, typically grows in like wet soils around water. It's a good wet, wetland indicator plant and um, forms thickets. The one that we have right outside the office here is about – 20 feet tall. Yeah. Uh, they, it's a shrub and it's thick, but then you look up and you're like, oh, it actually gets pretty tall too. But why I'm picking that one is it's blooming right now and it doesn't have like a your traditional like landscapey bloom. It has a little brown catkin. Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's that little. They're probably like two or three inches long. It's actually a showy yeah. catkin. Yeah. So it's like it has all these catkins all over it. And then around it, you see the cones from last year. And then I found out yesterday, I was just doing a little bit more research on it. Well, it's a monoecious plant, so it has the the male and female yeah. sex parts on uh, on the same plant. And if you look at the tips of the branches, then you can see the female flowers. Oh, nice! So the male flowers are the ones that are the catkins, and then they yeah. produce a, a lot of pollen. When you touched them a week or two ago, there was it was an explosion yeah. of pollen. There's not much left in there now, but the female flowers are on there as well, and just a little tiny red, maybe it's an eighth of an inch long. Um, these little red flowers that almost look like the cones, and that's what the cones will become. Yeah. And then I started to notice, oh, where the cones are on this this plant, and the cones would hold the seed, where that was the tips from Black, the year the prior. Year, yeah. So you could see how much it was growing from year to year just based on where the co- – well, I shouldn't say year to year, but from last year to this year, 
uh, from where the cones were last year. And yes, yeah, you'd have some tips that were two inches further from those last cones. And then you had others that were probably six inches from those last cones. So that was a, a pretty cool uh, observation that I didn't know until uh, I looked up yesterday. I think that was on either wildflower.org or Missouri Botanical Gardens website that Very I nice. found that information. Very nice. The one thing that I do know about that plant, I know a few things mm-hmm. about it, is that it is nitrogen fixing. Um, and because it's an obligate species, a lot of times in riparian buffer, people want to include it in the riparian buffer planting. Mm-hmm. But it's often discouraged because it's putting nitrogen into the ground, yeah. and that's typically when you're trying to remove nitrogen in those buffer buffer areas. So mm-hmm. um, just keep that in mind too. Not that not that you're you're doing a riparian buffer and yeah. planting in your yard, yeah. but um, it's it's a beautiful plant and it's striking mm-hmm. foliage, and it to me it stands out. I, I as a shrub. I, I love it, and the wildlife that you see nesting in it or using it as cover is, mm-hmm. is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great, great choice. I think uh, maybe we're ready for for our this and that. Yeah, definitely. You can get with this or you can get with that. So if it's your first time listening, we hope it's not. This or that is when uh, Tom and I throw out our current events and uh, things happening in a field of ecology or native plants, and uh, you get to vote on it as listeners. Yeah. Can so. I ask uh, why you hope this isn't their first time listening? I, I hope there's plenty of first time listeners. Oh, that's and, uh, true. We got lots of new listeners that are joining us for this. Oh, you know what? You just disparaged half our <laughs> listener base. <man. laughs> well, I didn't want to exclude everyone that's been listening. Like, uh, you're right. You're right. If you've been listening for a long time, I hope you we haven't appreciate listened. you. And, uh, I hope you have listened. <laughs> if you're new here, we are really glad you're joining us. <laughs> so we do need to comment on the the uh, episode 95 buzz articles, which I had the article on climate change in mm-hmm. Antarctica, and Tom had an article uh, referencing ticks. And you did vote, and the winner was Tom wins again. Nine to eight. It was a close one. Not a lot of votes, but it was. Yeah. Now I didn't very check. There was someone in the comments said, "Oh, I might have to to switch my vote." She did not switch. Okay, because I was going to remind her that she wanted to switch her vote because they we talked about during your article um, the, about the Shackleton uh, yeah journey where his ship, the Endurance, uh, got crushed in the ice and then sank in Antarctica, and then all twenty eight people survived. I actually just watched a YouTube video on it that was like an hour long um over the weekend that was like a good refresher for what i learned in the book and nice um it is really incredible how those those people survived but i wanted to point out that person because she was going to switch her vote to your article yeah, she and was. i was like but i'm the one who brought that up <laughs> <laughs> i'm the one and well, for i think i left out there they actually discovered his ship on wednesday they released all these images that they found the ship after it sank i think in the late teen, late 1910s or early 1920s i forget the exact dates but um, it was supposed to be the first uh, cross Antarctic expedition where they're going to sail to one side of Antarctic, Antarctica and then hike all the way to the other side. So yeah, that I had was, not been done before. I, I tried to even goad her to <laughs> change her vote. I was like, yeah, do it. Change. But it did not But I'm happen. glad to hear she didn't change. She didn't and change. My, my that article on given ticks, me, uh, yeah, prevailed, and that would have given me the win. But yeah. that, she was the swing vote. And it didn't yep. didn't swing in my favor. Maybe next week. So you get to choose. Would you like to present first or second? Um, yeah, I can go first. Okay. And uh, so this was – it's a little bit different of an article than what we normally cover because it was from a slightly different source than we'll normally – I'll normally draw from. And uh, okay. this was from OutdoorLife.com, 
And um, originally, I guess, published on their .com, and then I think it actually came out in the magazine as well. And uh, the title of it was Weed Growers, The Evolution of Food Plots, Roundup Spraying, and Deer Habitat Management. Um, for what I'm going to read, I'm skipping over some of the, the Roundup stuff. Gotcha. Um, I'll include a little bit in there, but I it didn't go to the heart of the article. It was kind of a separate thing that was in there that... I'll, I'll touch on it right, gotcha. a little more later. Gotcha. But, and this was by Christine Peterson, and it was published on March 1st uh, of this year. Is there a paywall? There is not a paywall. Oh, darn. So, Actually, that doesn't seem to deter people from voting. No. We have uh, very educated we listeners. Do. So. Or they, they have deep pockets and they can <laughs> yeah. pay for the New York Times. So um, I'll read a little bit, and then I'll add my thoughts in here or there. So, All right. Uh, Jason Hewitt knew how to grow food and habitat for wildlife. He'd been managing land in one way or another since he was 16 years old, and he oversaw 15,000 acres covering three counties in South Carolina. Those properties raised plenty of quail, but they weren't producing the quality of deer uh, Hewitt had hoped for. Something I actually wanted to start out with, this is my thoughts again, is um, it's one of the things that they'll touch on a little bit here and there in this article is uh, is the size class of deer. And, uh, and a lot of that gets attributed to trophy hunting, but I guess you look back in history, there's two main groups that people will use to score deer for the, okay. the actually the trophy potential of that deer. And it's the Boone and Crockett Club and then the Pope and Young Club. One's okay. for gun hunting, the other one's for archery hunting. Gotcha. But the roots of those organizations were really to measure the healthiness of your deer herd, uh, white-tailed deer herd, and really all kinds of species because they do sheep and elk and all kinds of things, um, primarily game species. But what they found is, especially in white-tailed deer, you would have uh, bucks that had bigger antlers if they had better nutrition. Okay. Um, over a period of time, too, it wasn't just their generation. If multiple generations had better nutrition, uh, lower social pressure, uh, and basically they were overall healthier animals, they had the potential to grow much bigger racks. Oh. So you'd have much larger antler deer if the population was in balance and they were getting high nutrient food. So, so let me ask you this. Genetically, did we do the herd a dishonor by taking out the, the healthiest deer with the biggest rack? Like if you have a community and mm-hmm. then you're, you're going for the big deer and you're taking out all the healthiest ones, are you diminishing the overall mm-hmm. health of that? Not necessarily, because right. and that's a, a sidetrack from a lot of this. Uh, at least from what I know, I'm I'm not an expert on this. Yeah. I've listened to a bunch of experts yeah. talk about it, and it's primarily the so, like if with a, a baby, like yeah. a human baby, half the DNA is coming from the male and half's coming from the female. Gotcha. So the female has just as much play in okay. what that gotcha. male's antler size will be gotcha. as the male does, and. Typically, when you see a smaller antler deer, it's either younger, or it's it had. It's not even that itself didn't get the right nutrition. It's that its mother didn't get the right nutrition when it was in utero. Gotcha. All right. So it's if when that deer is in is still unborn, if the the doe doesn't get the right nutrition, it's going to give birth to a a less healthy baby, gotcha. and then that antler potential is a lot lower. And and they're, usually it's a sign that your habitat's really crappy. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the doe doesn't have the – so we look at New Jersey where people say, oh, we don't get big deer in New Jersey outside of some certain areas. Well, it's typically – we just don't have the habitat and therefore the nutrition for these deer. 
And that's why the deer tend to be smaller. It's not necessarily always an age thing or a, it's, and you look across the country, it tends to be where there's poor nutrition uh, habitats or nutrient dense habitats. You have smaller deer. Okay. Um, all right. So that was, I just want to clear that up because a couple times in the article, they say like 160 class deer, um, it's all measured by inches. So you'd gotcha. measure the, each, uh, the whole main beam of the, of the deer and then each, okay. uh, each antler point. And then you total that up and there's a couple other things that go in there, like the spread and all that. And then okay. you come up with a total that's, uh, anything, well for Pope and Young, it's, which is archery based, anything under, over 125 inches is, entered in their record book. Okay. And it basically says, okay, there's a whole bunch of deer that are over 125 inches coming out of this county in New Jersey. That means they probably have really good habitat and really good herd dynamics. The population is balanced male to female. They don't have way too many deer per acre. Um, The habitat can support the number of deer, and that's why they have more larger bucks. Gotcha. Um, It's a lot harder to do with those because you'd have to capture them and weigh them and measure the circumference and all that stuff. It's a lot easier to do because you're – harvesting the bucks and back then there weren't a lot of bucks out there so they wanted to preserve those bucks and they really try and gear people into hunting trophy animals gotcha. because they wanted to preserve those younger animals and the does so they could rebuild these back in the okay. 1970s there weren't deer especially no, in our area deer didn't really it that's when they started to rebound because we put a lot of these conservation efforts in place okay and now there's way too many and it's kind of Changing that dynamic. We don't need to shoot just the big ones. We need to shoot a variety. Yeah. So. Okay. Going back to the article. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we had resources of 600 acre food plots with the average food plot being uh, about three acres. Um, And Hewitt says, but we weren't growing 160 inch deer. That's why I put that in there. Just kind of preface what that meant. So he pointed out that focusing on quail still had a lot of warm season grasses. And yes, we had our food plot acreage, but he said very little on this property for or is quality native forage for deer. Food plots, Harper said, should be considered the ice cream of deer food. Focus on bringing back native species high in protein by using fire, disking, herbicides, and watch the deer grow. Hewitt did, and the deer responded four years into the new program. Hewitt started seeing those 160-inch deer uh, bucks turn up back up on his land. Harper, Hewitt, and others are part of a growing contingent of habitat managers promoting a philosophy of managing whitetail habitat that takes less work, less time, less money, and most important to some, less herbicide. The timing of this trend couldn't be better. The more holistic approach to land management that Harper and others promote doesn't call for an absence of herbicides like glyphosate, um, but managing land for native plants and ultimately feeding everything from deer and turkeys to songbirds and butterflies may actually require less herbicide and result in that ultimate goal of better deer hunting. So um, the food plot trend, and this is me kind of paraphrasing a little bit, it started back in the 80s, and it was kind of that uh, uniquely American quick fix saying, hey, if we we found that deer that have better nutrition grow bigger, <laughs> grow bigger antlers, instead of improving the habitat, let's just add a whole bunch of high-protein, high-nutrient-dense foods um, through the form of like salt licks and mineral licks and then food plots, which would have things... Uh, like wheat and soybeans and all kinds of stuff. This, and this isn't really a new trend. It was just a new trend specifically for deer hunting. The idea of planting things to attract game animals can be tracked all the way back to Genghis Khan. And um, that's what the 12th century. So they would plant uh, acres and acres of something to attract game to that area because they knew it was like ice cream. Yeah. And in the summer you want to go out for ice cream. But my analogy is, well, 
then eventually there's time you don't want to go for ice cream. You still want to have that salad or, or get something from the grocery store so you can have a well, well-rounded well meal. You can't just eat ice cream all the time. And um, and what we found in our area is we've kind of closed up all the grocery stores and then you find some ice cream here and there. Yeah. But then the ice cream stores close down because it's, a.k.a. winter and nothing's growing and there's no food around. So, um, and uh, let me skip ahead here. So, uh, so a lot of people are now moving to fire. So a lot of people as recently as 10 years ago were trying to plant as much open space as they possibly could and quickly found out it could be pretty expensive. Uh, people were then receptive and managing for the weeds in the field because deer like many of the weeds as much, if not better, than what they've been planting in the food plots. It's true, deer love many plants we consider weeds, including the even, uh, even the hated ragweed. Uh, the most advanced deer habitat managers use controlled burns, selective timber harvest, disking, and targeted herbicides to clear fields to open the canopy and use sunlight to reach the forest floor to remove invasive species and to l- let the natural seed bank do what it's made to do. Fire is the oldest landscape management tool. In addition to being such a, a big part of everything we do, the people of the South burn the woods a lot. Uh, Native Americans used to burn the woods a lot. Uh, I term, term it a traditional rural life ways. Everyone who lives on Earth has burned. So do it carefully, Stowe and others argue. Uh, and you can watch your land improve with minimal financial investment. When the fire can't be used, landowners can try disking, a form of plowing to clear foul fields. But when the fire is not an option and disking is too broad a brush, Harper recommends using herbicides like Roundup to target only those plants that really don't provide nutrition to deer, turkeys, and other wildlife. Um, a lot of those tend to be non-native invasive plants. So Japanese honeysuckle, this is something I actually just did uh, over the last couple of weeks, was going through a little piece of woods behind our farm that we still own. And just Japanese honeysuckle still had leaves. Nothing else had leaves. So I could, uh, I don't want to say liberally, but I could spray um, those honeysuckle plants and not have to worry as much about what was behind it or where the wind might drift. I wasn't doing it on windy days, but I didn't have to worry as much because there weren't those green leaves to suck up that herbicide and soak it in. Same thing with multiflora rose. Um, and some of the other um, non-native brambles that were in that forest that we're seeing bloom. The, the Japanese barberry, I think, was just starting to – I was seeing the buds start to swell the last time I was back there. There's not a lot that was starting to leaf out that time that could accept that herbicide yeah. um, in such a low dose. So, you could, yeah, you, if you spray it on a trunk of a tree, it can kill that tree, but you need to up the dosage quite a bit to, to penetrate. So Awesome. Um Going forward, uh, you'll have dead spots. Then this is going back to spraying herbicide. You'll have dead spots, and then within a couple of rains, something will start growing, Harper says. If you don't like it, you can kill it and let it germin- let germination take place again. Do that once a year in June or July, and by year three, you won't have to spray as much. It's natural selection with a hand from you and your modern chemicals. This evolving philosophy of land management is actually better for the wildlife than food plots were intended to benefit, says Kip Adams, former guest, by the yes. way. Um a wildlife biologist and chief conservation officer for the National Deer Association. If you try and carry a deer herd on food plots, you'll fail in many years. He said, even if you do everything right, some years it will rain too much or not enough, and you will fail. You will have a far better job providing food for deer if you manage your fields and, pro- with, and property properly. Adam still grows his own food plots, but he switched many of uh, to early successional vegetation, largely uh, broadleaf plants like ragweed, jewelweed, beggar's lice, and goldenrod. Those plants provide plenty of protein for deer, but is at a much lower cost. He still uses glyphosate for the food plots he maintains and to spray uh, noxious weeds, but he uses far less than he once did. It's uh, if you do, 
things to promote plants that occur naturally, you'll be in a better place, he says. It seems that the deer will be too. So It's all things yeah. that, that you and I consider common sense. Yeah, oh yeah. But it's not naturally taken that way generally. No, and it's um, – it's I, – I wanted to touch on the glyphosate. I took a lot of that out because I feel like they really hammered that hammered that hammered. point home. But uh, – and one of the things I'll also point out is they're taking – Bayer, who owns uh, the Roundup brand, brand name now, is taking glyphosate off the shelves. But you're still going to see that Roundup name. It's just a different formulation that doesn't have glyphosate in it. They're still using that branding, um, but they're taking glyphosate off the shelves for homeowners. If you're a, a – like, I don't want to say a wholesale practitioner, but you're a – a commercial user, um, you're still able to get those chemicals. And it's under, we don't get it when we use it for spot spurring weeds. We don't get it as Roundup. We get it as a different yeah. brand name anyway. Um, so that's something to pay attention to as well. But like I said, I was just out in the woods and I had a backpack sprayer full of glyphosate. And I just went around and I, whenever I saw something I didn't like or didn't want, I would spray it. And the reason I did that is because our next step was cutting down some trees, primarily some uh, some maples, since we have a ton of maples and sweet gums. That was our really targeted species because we don't want that. I guess it's not a monoculture because there's a handful of things, but those but were not they, as, those made up the bunch. It's the not most as diverse, of it. yeah. And we could take a lot of those out, let that sunlight now hit the the forest floor, and everything that's in the seed bank would just explode, and we get a bunch of. Uh, forbs and grasses and shrubs that are going to start to come up because they have that sunlight to feed them where they didn't before, and we could really increase that diversity. But if we didn't get rid of these invasive plants, then we were going to have the invasives explode, and then we'd have, okay, we had more things, but it's Japanese honeysuckle, multiflora rose, uh, Japanese barberry, and things that didn't provide any value. And that's a big mistake that's made in a lot of restorations that cause their failure, that the invasives aren't properly Mm -hmm. taken care of, or instead of uh, spraying them or cutting them, they're digging them up. They're promoting uh, disturbance in the soil, which are just going to mm-hmm. lead to more invasives coming in. Yep. So if you're going to daylight, you have to have those problems taken care of, or the daylighting's going to go yeah, it's, completely it's, backwards. Yes, exactly. It's going to cause more of a problem for you than. And we're, I'm sure, there's still going to be a ton of invasive pressure, and we're going to have to keep going through it for really the next. Our plan is the next three to five years twice a year to go through and just like spot spray these little parcels. I've talked to other people say, well, you have so much of it and you look in your forest floor, there's, there's really not a lot of beneficial stuff there now. Why don't you just hit the whole thing? Save yourself a lot of walking and a lot of uh, back pain from carrying around a a heavy sprayer. Just hit the whole thing with a a mister or something like that. I, I'm not comfortable doing that. I want to as target this as much as possible. Um, it's only five acres when you really add it all up. So, okay, it took me a couple backpackfuls and, and two weekends to get it all done at an hour here or there, just going out there when I can. But think how much healthier that soil is by doing it. Exactly. That way. Yeah. So, uh, I just didn't, I wanted to minimize our impact and really direct it on the, the right things. Yeah. And that's kind of the trend. I, I talk about this Facebook group, Native Habitat Managers, that's on, uh, Facebook a lot. A lot of people are doing this across the country, and they're doing it for game species. They're doing it because they want quail, they want deer, they want turkeys, they want really healthy habitats that are nutrient-dense. If you think back to Dr. J. Kelly being on, he's saying, well, our carrying capacity is only 10 to 15 deer per acre, or excuse me, per square mile. And 
Well, that's true with the habitat we have, and it's because we have all, I don't want, like, those early to mid-successional forests where the deer are really edge creatures. So if you wanted more habitat to support a deer, you need to create habitat that will support deer. So it's, uh, it's, it's weird to manage for, and the other piece of that puzzle is reducing our deer herd so that we can keep that habitat healthy as well. We want to have, at our farm, our goal is to have a healthy habitat, primarily for quail, but also have it be useful to turkeys and deer, things that we like to hunt, um, but also be helping our birds and our bees and butterflies and all this other stuff as well. All these things really require very, very similar plants and habitats, um, at least the, the things that we can provide for. We're, we don't have deep old successional forests. We don't have that deep forest. It's all fragmented around here. So it's the management techniques are really the same, and the end goals are what's different. And I've preached it a bunch. It's it's getting those groups to come together and realize, hey, we're working the same way for different things, but why don't we work together since our goals, while they're different, take the same path. Yeah. So I just thought it was a unique article in a unique place where uh, we don't usually see this kind of article. I agree. I um, agree. In the native plant space. So. Totally. That's yeah. that's a fantastic article. Thank you. Mine oh. is not as good. Oh, I'm sure it's still pretty good, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I found this article and found it very interesting for me. And the, the name of my article this week is The Study Uncovers Mystery of the Invasive Common Reed, which is Phragmites uh, australis. And that's by Barry Bronston, and it was on phys.org. Um, it's not a long article, so I'm just going to read the, mm-hmm. the the article in its entirety, and then we can talk about it. They grow up to 12 to 15 feet tall and are causing havoc in the wetlands of North America. Known as Phragmites australis, the non-native common reed is one of the most important and most studied plants in the world. It is also one of the most invasive, said Keith Clay, professor and chair of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Tulane University. In trying to uncover some of the mystery surrounding the plant, Clay, along with researchers from LSU and the U.S. Geological Survey, have published the first reference genome for Phragmites australis, enabling them to determine the genomic genomic basis driving its invasive success compared to native plants. Their study was published in Molecular Ecology and featured in recent edition of The Scientist. Clay's team includes Kurt P. Kowalski, a research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and Maheshi Dasanayake, an associate professor, and Dong Ha Oh in the LSU College of Science. Research associate Quinn Kwok. Wow, I'm really this is this is a lot of difficult names. And former Indiana University student Philippa Tanford also contributed. The study is among nearly fifteen thousand scientific papers that have been published on the Phragmites since 2020. Clay said it is one of the worst invasive species in wetland habitats of North America yet provides important ecosystem services in its native European range and in coastal Louisiana, where it is called Rousseau Cane and helps hold our threatened coastline in place. Given the significance of the genome sequence of Phragmites will help our understanding of genetic mechanisms leading to invasiveness and potential management strategies. The European Phragmites first appeared in North America in the 1800s, spreading quickly and aggressively through the wetlands of Canada and in, in the United States. Its invasion was dramatic, smothering other native plants and pushing out marsh animals, including many threatened and endangered species. It has also had a negative effect on agricultural production. Despite many early genetic studies, the lack of the first-rate genome assembly to use as a reference had made it difficult to uncover the mysteries of the common breed success, Clay said. 
Glenna's team built a genome that reveal novel genome characteristics that contribute to the invasiveness of Phragmites australis. They found the plant to have nearly 65,000 genes, significantly higher than other well-studied grasses. We described the first reference genome for Phragmites australis and compare invasive and native genotypes collected from replicated populations across the Laurentian Great Lakes to deduce genomic, genomic bases driving the invasive success, Clay said. Here we report novel genomic features including a Phragmites, Phragmites lineage-specific whole genome duplication followed by gene loss and preferential uh, retention of genes associated with transcription. Transcription factors and regulatory functions in the remaining duplicates. Combined with the previous ecological environmental data, this adds to our understanding of mechanisms leading to invasiveness and support the development of novel genomics-assisted management approaches for the invasive Phragmites, Clay said. So I appreciate – we always talk about that it's an issue and how do we get rid of – the only way that we've seen it successfully – eradicated mm. on wetlands projects is to spray and to spray twice yeah um because digging it has such a, a thick rhizomal mat that if you just miss a little bit you're you're really stripping the land and mm-hmm. but if you're you miss by even a little the problem still exists mm-hmm. so it's spraying knock it back spray again which is drastically changing the soil makeup of of these wetlands mm-hmm. um and and everything and we've I, I think part of why it spread was that was at a time that came here that we were drastically changing the landscape ourselves. And we talked about uh, up in northern New Jersey, like damming rivers and changing it from brackish to – I mean from freshwater to brackish, killing all the freshwater mm-hmm. material. You have all this open material or open land that Phragmites can take hold yeah. of. And, and we've seen papers where people argue that we're doing more damage by taking it out. Because it is providing erosion control, but mm-hmm. it doesn't. It's proven that it doesn't host. It doesn't contribute to the food web the same way as native. Oh yeah, uh, native, native flora. So I appreciate that they're looking to find out what makes it invasive. This is a great first step, mm-hmm. and how we can control it, and why this plant is taking over more. Yeah, it, it's a very important plant in Europe. Not not so much here, but you can say the same thing about. There are plenty of plants here that we talk about on a native plant every day that have been taken yeah. to Europe's Spartina alterniflora. Even just mm-hmm. on the West Coast compared to the East Coast or in Europe has has provided an issue. And there's, I think, uh, black cherries become invasive in mm-hmm. um, in uh, Eurasia. So it's I, I appreciate the steps and that we're getting closer. And maybe there's a way that they can figure out things that we can do to change this. I don't know what that is. It's just a first step. But I appreciate sixty, you know, sixty-five thousand papers written on Phragmites. Yeah, that's a lot and of I was, that's a lot of research that oh, yeah. for a problem that still exists. Yeah, and it's it's one of those ones where I don't know how we actually <laughs> actually solve it because there's just so much of it, and it's in hard to get right. to places. Yeah, fifteen thousand papers, by the way, and I it's can, um oh yeah yep yeah. it's uh, sixty-five thousand genes. Yes, I was yeah. looking at that. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, with all the Bradford pears that are out there, yes. when you're driving down the highway, say, okay, there's a lot of them, but I feel like if we really put our some effort into it, we could we could get rid of them all. Yeah. If we went out there and and cut them and and um and use some herbicide to to really kill the the yeah. roots and all that, 
I think we could get rid of them all. If it would take a long time, but we could do it. But with Phragmites, I just I don't see a way how to do it. They're just in such hard to get to places sometimes, and they're just everywhere. It's everywhere. We see yeah. it coming up. It doesn't have to be even in wetland situations. We mm-hmm. see it driving up and down the highways in New Jersey, patches of it. Like when you cross the bridge into Delaware, it's all over Yeah, in, in oh, yeah. Delaware. It's a, it's a huge problem there. It's a huge problem in nor- northern New Jersey. It's a huge mm-hmm. problem everywhere. Um, you know, But part of the problem is I still – so far this year, I've gotten at least two calls for customers asking for fragments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know there's someone growing it today alone. You know, part of the problem is this material is still available for sale. Mm-hmm. Also, I I got a request for trees today for a, a town in northern New Jersey, and on the list was still calorie pear. Mm-hmm. You know, so you could remove them, but they're still planting yep. it. So yep. there there's still other factors that are a part of this, um, but a lot of the a, a lot of how it's taken care of right now is spraying or digging. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the path to find out, hey, why is this this yeah. invasive? Mm-hmm. What is the makeup? Is there anything that we can do once we understand? I don't know that we truly understand yeah. this plant and mm-hmm. why it's so invasive. So if they're able to do it for Phragmites, maybe Japanese knotweed, maybe mm-hmm. – you know, I, I appreciate the, the line of scientific uh, – research that they're doing yeah. to try to to fix a problem that has has been around for hundreds of years mm-hmm. so that's my article yeah that's all i got no, i think that's really good and it's, it's a plant that we know is invasive i don't there's a lot of people who like that plant they they ask about it because they, they see it all over the yeah. place and they think it's a native plant because they see it all over the place but i don't it doesn't have that while it's attractive in some ways it doesn't have that like showiness to it yeah and and the name recognition, I think some of the other invasives do. Yeah. But I personally, I, maybe it's just the business we're in. I see this as like a bigger issue than as an invasive plant than some other things that get more the the talk or news. I guess. Yeah. Like, what, what do you think? Do you think Phragmites is more more of an issue um, than I calorie think- pear and and Japanese barberry? You know, I I think it's a similar issue. I think it doesn't affect homeowners as much. Like mm-hmm. you could have yeah. some open land and have calorie pair coming in or like I could have from my old property driven around the corner and mm-hmm. and I have taken video of fields yeah. that were yep. nothing but Bradford pear. You know, but interestingly enough, and I know I've talked about this before, my previous property had wetlands in the back backing up to the turnpike that where it was a pipeline easement that would get mowed once a year and they would have to come in and do repairs mm-hmm. or tree work and it was it was so wet that when they mowed it once a year it was disturbing the soil. Yeah. And it only took me living I'd lived there for over 20 years, 5 years and there was fragmites. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it, it was the right conditions and it came in. I just think those are conditions that aren't in most homeowners properties. So mm-hmm. they're yeah. seeing yep. calorie pair but they're not seeing it but I think I don't know. I it might be a worse problem. Yeah. It, it might be because it takes such broad conditions that it's choking mm. out wetlands which are so important. Yeah. Um, and you think in large like yeah. larger areas. I always think about like the wetlands are not where a lot of times where the development is too. So they're kind of a little bit more hidden and um and you'll only see them I shouldn't say only see them, but a lot of times you see them is 
going over the highway when you're going over a wetland in a bridge, and that's when you really can see uh, pretty clearly how expansive some of these tracks of Phragmites are. And then uh, also being in a wetland really restricts, you, you mentioned spraying is a way of control. Well, you can't use a lot of herbicides with water because they, there's all different kinds. I know yeah. with glyphosate in one, it has a um, glyphosate on its own, I guess, isn't that harmful to mollusks and fish. Yeah. But there's a surfactant in it that helps it stick to the things. That is really bad for fish and mollusks. Um, so it's not necessarily the chemical that's always the issue, but it's the carriers and, and other stuff that can be be equally, if not more, harmful. Yeah. So you can't use glyphosate. There's If you want to spray a pond edge, there's certain you can't just spray regular Roundup or a stream edge. Yeah. It's going to impact the things that are living in the water way, way more. You have to get different herbicides that are and less harmful than uh, to, to aquatic life. And it doesn't happen overnight. We have a project that we're supplying this spring that the project was supposed supposed to start two years ago, and it was in northern New Jersey, and they decided, hey, we really need to get the Phragmiters under control. Two, yeah. year, two years later, they're just ready mm-hmm. to plant. Yep. So it's not – yeah, it's it's a big factor, and when you think of how hard it is to mitigate mm-hmm. that factor and the cost, it's got to be more costly than mitigating calorie pair. Yeah, that's my that's my guess. But you could probably, you know, it's not that's not invasive as far as root system. It can just seed itself in really well. Where Phragmites root system is going to take hold. And be unbearable. To get rid of it, it's a lot harder than to get rid of calorie pair. So I don't know. That's my that's my thought on that. I see you looking something up. Oh, like, um, uh, we're about to get in the listener shout-outs. Oh, uh, you getting ready and for I'm, it? Yeah, I'm making sure I have all my, my facts down. All right, so before I forget, we will post on our Facebook group, which is now over 900 people, which I'm really excited about. Uh, the our two articles, so make sure you go on there. You can read them both uh, if you want to follow up a little bit more, and you get to vote because. And of course, the choice is yours. So now that we've said that, we can kick into listener shoutouts. Listener, listener, shoutout. Would you like to go first? I've been going first. I, a lot. I have a lot to you do to, to cover today. That's you why do. I was prepping in the last segment <laughs> to make sure I was prepared, which is a good thing. That's, yeah. a, that's oh, yeah. a great thing. So we actually had uh, at least four, if not more, if not more than four, four, but four was, that we have recorded uh, five-star reviews that I have to shout out right now. Just on Native Plants Healthy Planet, there yeah. were more five-star reviews on uh, a native plant every day. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe we should reserve those for that show and at some point do yes, a, a that's, listener that's thank you. Yes, that's what I was thinking okay. too. Right. Um, the first one, and I'm going in reverse order of how they came in, was from uh, uh, Bear Hole and uh, – they found this show a month or so ago, and um, and they really love it. And it's not just because we aired one of their questions on on air. So, I, like I said, I don't know what these people's <laughs> names are, but but I guess if I go back, we could probably figure it out through uh, through who called in and left the question at yes. some point. Um, but they love the variety guests, and then our openness on uh, on how we're going through this podcast as well, which is something that's really true. We we mentioned before we've learned. As, as much, if not more, than you guys have listening and talking to these yeah. guests. And some of the stuff that happens just before, just after the podcast, there's little follow-up conversations we have where we clarify some things. Our conversations, 
spill over to with our colleagues and and yeah. our customers and yeah. things like that. Like we're we're taking this knowledge, and our our colleagues and customers are coming to us too, and it's it's really affecting how we do business as well, not just how we do the podcast. It's affecting our everyday lives, and it's been a a, a full complete journey for us. Yeah, um, NJ twenty nine left a five star review, and they're an NV, NJ native and uh, an avid gardener, and they love the segments where we talk about individual native plants. So they really like a native plant every day as yes. well, and um, and they would love to see us do. And maybe we have to do an episode on this: how you can make a big impact in a small yard, and some of the I, things you can do that really can uh, can make like not everyone has like I mentioned with these habitat managers. 15,000 acres to manage or even 100 acres to manage. A lot of people only have half an acre or an acre or three acres. And you can still make a big impact, especially getting your neighbors on board and kind of combining those efforts together. I agree. That's so, a that's a great topic maybe for this spring when when everyone's starting to think about planting. We can uh, we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Meg, uh, Meg 419 was very concise and said educational and so interesting, even for professionals in the green industry. So it's always nice when we find that some professionals are listening to this stuff too. That makes us feel like we're really doing a good job. I keep waiting for I, – yeah. I'm sure you don't feel this way, but I keep waiting for someone to go, listen, I know my stuff. You're a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I keep waiting to just be called out like, you fraud. You don't know what you're talking well, about. Well, if you want to call out Fran, you can do it so in a five-star review and I'll, <laughs> I'll be forced to say it right here. So. <laughs> And what else he got? And then we had a CJB in AL, and they wrote in and said, uh, a few months ago when I first happened on this pod, I was skeptical about liking it, but now I'm a huge fan and almost daily listener. Thanks to a back catalog and plant of a, uh, a native plant every day. On a recent road trip, I listened for nearly 10 hours, which I don't know how you did it. Could, I can could, barely put up with an eight-hour day. Could you of, imagine listening to me? Like, and we've been in car trips. Like, you've had to listen to me for four hours round trip. Yeah. Were you ready to get out of that car? Uh, if I, if you want me to be honest, uh, yeah, when yeah. there was one trip where, um, this is a couple <laughs> years ago <laughs> when we went from, uh, maybe I'll do this as my secret. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have, have a secret. secret otherwise. Right, save I'll it save it as a secret. Yeah. You know, Agatha, I don't think could listen to me for 10 hours. I think she would be climbing out the window after about an hour. There's some walks that we go <laughs> on where she's like, is this going to be the whole, the whole walk? <laughs> like, <laughs> at least she's she's up front with you instead of just resenting you under her breath yeah that's, no, no that's she's so, you know what that's one thing i love about agatha is i never ever ever have to wonder what she's thinking mm-hmm. <laughs> i yeah. i always know she's up front about it so that's good that's yeah, good so, to have it's a, a good trait it's a good trait so but yeah i'll save that for for my secret right. now i came up with one i was hoping i'd stumble across something in the whole all right i'm looking forward to things so. i'm looking forward to it. any complaints today no complaints but i still have my listener shout out I oh have one. oh yeah i'm skipping so ahead. um because there are no complaints and there are no questions and there is not a grow read a book i thought if i went second our my listener shout out would lead us into a topic for mm-hmm. today. So uh, my listener shout out is to Donna Sharrett. Sharrett? I'd say Sharrett. Sharrett, uh, who sent Tom and I a very nice email. Um, just uh, had very kind words to say about the podcast, but also followed up with a couple articles that she mm-hmm. she really liked and some things uh, within local government, things like that. She really enjoyed the episode that we did with uh, Richard McCoy on um uh, the regulations about, bands and yeah all that. yeah 
So, and, and she shared some things locally of what you can do. So, but one of the, one of the things that, that Donna brought up was organizations that pledge to plant trees. If you buy, like we'll plant a tree for every dollar you donate or for every product you buy, we'll plant a tree. And I know we've kind of touched on this in bits and pieces throughout mm-hmm. because you you talked about the seed from Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios, yep. and yep. we talked about that there's – I think we did on the podcast that there's literally companies that you can hire that go out and plant mm-hmm. trees for you. So they're not – they may not necessarily be planting the trees. But yeah. when when – if you're making a decision to purchase a product or donate a dollar – Based on this, there's some things that you should probably look into to make sure that it's it's the mm-hmm. route that you want to go. And we thought that we would discuss some of this yeah. because oh, yeah. uh, one of the main things is just because they're planting a tree doesn't mean that they're planting a tree even on this continent. Yeah, um, or, or the right tree. Or the it's, right tree, yeah. like, And it's not a bad thing to plant trees. Like we're, we're looking at a global ecosystem. So if you're helping mm-hmm. an ecosystem somewhere, it's helping all of us. Yes. Yeah. So it's not a bad thing for trees to be planted elsewhere. But a lot of the times these trees aren't being planted here. Yeah. Like they could be yep. being planted in South America or mm-hmm. Africa or different areas of the country. If you want to help our environment, make sure mm-hmm. you find out where these trees are Yeah, going. I remember right when I, I came back and started working with the nursery full time, I was like, well, we have all these little seedlings and – I think it was maybe like Tom's shoes and Lisa mattresses. And there's a whole bunch of them that were saying, oh, for every pair of shoes we sell, we donate a pair of shoes and we're going to plant a tree or every mattress we sell, we plant a tree. So I'm like, well, how do we get in that market? Especially if you've been listening to a podcast for a long time. I'm sure you've heard these ads, especially five, six years ago, they were happening a ton. So um, we grow a lot of little tree seedlings. So how could we maybe benefit as a nursery and then also make sure that they're planting native plants? When they do these. So I looked up a couple companies and um, that were doing this. And just about every one I found was out of the country. And um, basically how a lot of these work is these. The one I, I remember particularly was a Dutch company that was working primarily in like southern Africa and then southeast Asia. And they were just planting millions and millions of little tree seeds and seedlings. Um, I think they were even sometimes dropping seeds from airplanes. Yeah. And then they, well, we had 200 million <laughs> seeds on that airplane, so we just planted 200 million trees. And uh, and it was just kind of indiscriminate, just flying over an area that they wanted to plant um, or going into certain areas and planting these little seedlings. Uh, and then they would go and sell those the credits, I'll, I'll call them, to – uh, companies like Tom's Shoes and Lisa Mattresses and other companies that were planting planting a tree for every. So it wasn't the the people from those companies that. Now, don't get me wrong. In some cases, they were. Yeah. Um. I don't want to paint. I don't. We're I'm not saying, saying this it's very everyone. generally. Yeah. It's not everyone. In some cases, they were, or they're planting a portion of them. They'd have a day where they have everyone in their office go and plant a thousand trees. Yeah. Um. But if they need to plant ten million trees, because that's how much money they made for every dollar that were planting a tree, a lot of times they were buying the credits from these other companies that were just going and planting millions and millions of trees. And that was their, their, how they were planting these trees, how the, the sales pitch was going was planting a tree. But what happens a lot of times is it's only one kind of tree. So you've basically planted a monoculture. If it seeds, not all those trees came up. 
It's um, not always a native plant. Not or always native a native to that, plant to that area. Or to that area. Or not even a plant that should be growing in that area. A it's, lot of times we've seen like, oh, we're going to, you know, you look into it and you find out they're planting all balsam fir. Mm-hmm. You know, in an area that you know they're not going to survive or they're yep. not going to be, you know, they're not native to that area, things like that. So it's, to me, if 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 you're making a decision based on that, you could take that same money and plant a tree yourself or donate mm-hmm. a tree to um, like Native Plant Society in New Jersey or or organization that you know mm-hmm. is going to plant the tree themselves yep. through volunteers. Yeah. Um, there's There's other ways to do it. Not saying that we're not. I don't want to say all these companies that do this are doing the wrong thing. They have yeah. all great and, intentions. And these, yeah, the intentions, yeah. it's not done maliciously. It's not like, oh, yeah, we're, we're tricking all those people. But no. it's, a, it's a marketing technique. Yeah, it it's a way to get people to feel good about their per- – like a little bit extra like good feeling in their heart about that purchase they're making. You know, it's planted a tree somewhere. But it's also a business to a lot of these. It's a marketing. So I'm getting your dollars because you're now buying my product because I'm going to plant a tree. And then this person is doing that, and they need to do it as cheaply and efficiently as possible so they can maximize the potential of planting all these trees and bring in a lot of these dollars for themselves to keep doing because they yeah. want to plant more trees too. Yeah. I'm sure the the they want to plant lots yeah. of trees because they think they're really helping. They're in a lot good. of cases, they are helping. Yeah. So the more business they can do, the more trees they can plant and sell, well, the more money they have to spend on planting more trees. Well, the other the other aspect, one thing that we repeatedly hear and learn from all of these guests that are working at nonprofits doing yeah. tree plantings, like I think of the the Keystone Ten Million Tree mm-hmm. Partnership, Brenda Siglitz, yeah. that we just had on uh, last episode. That is a daunting task, but the only reason it's becoming successful is because of the stewardship after the fact. They mm-hmm. factor that in, so. Yeah. Those plants are being taken care of. If you're blasting two hundred thousand seeds out of a out of a plane, more than likely that stewardship. I could be wrong, but that stewardship plan's mm-hmm. not there after the fact. Yeah. Um, so if you can partner yourself with a company that you know is not mm-hmm. only going to plant a tree or let you plant a tree for free, that there's stewardship behind it. Yeah. It's going to be more successful. You can feel good about it. Now the other part of this is. And we kind of brought this up a little bit earlier. Is uh, you don't always need to plant trees. No. Some of it, like we had on Southeastern Grasslands, Grasslands mm. Initiative on, that was their whole big thing. Is we're planting all these trees across the southeast. There's not supposed to be trees here, but we're still planting trees. Um, so yeah, a lot of these places you don't need to have trees. You need to have lightly forested savannas or grasslands or meadows or or other kind of habitats. That's what should be there and trees are actually i don't want to say uh maybe a deficit to what could potentially be there they're not a negative but they're not what what it could be yeah i know square square or surface area like Mm -hmm. that we talk about you're getting you're getting a lot of bang for your buck with a tree as it gets taller Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of areas where trees aren't the best thing and we've talked about a lot of times when you go into certain forests and you don't see any understory you're you start to be concerned about the health of that forest. Mm-hmm. You need habitat and understory. Yeah. Like shrubs are an important part too. So grasses, uh, herbs and forbs, all that, graminoids, all those things are important. You need a nice mix. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yep. not exactly. just, it's not just a, a one-size-fits-all fixes right. everything. Imagine how boring it would be if everywhere you went there was just the same trees everywhere yeah. <laughs> and you didn't have that that diversity and the, the changes and then the changes with the seasons. Um with what's blooming and all the different forbs and, and grasses that are out there. 
And, yeah, and like you said, pretty, it would be just as boring as yeah. seeing a, a city. And these companies aren't doing it to pull the the hood over your eyes or mm. the wool over your eyes. They're doing it they for legitimate. They want mm. to yeah. to to give back. So just make sure you try to weed out a little bit who's doing what before you make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's nothing wrong with giving money to have a tree planted. There's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But just like anything else, do a little bit of research. Like if you're buying a pair of shoes, you would probably do a little bit of research to, mm-hmm. you know, like a running shoe. Like, hey, I want this. You know, I'm going to buy this yeah. over that. Do a little research about where that money's going if you're going to give money. So you mm-hmm. feel, you, you know, you want to feel good about it as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, uh, we said it before, it's kind of like the plight of all ecologists is you, you know all the the terrible things that are happening right. in the world. This is just another example of it. Is so so many people look at that and say, wow, I'm doing something really good because they're going to plant a tree, not realizing that well, maybe that's not what we need to plant. Yeah, Maybe it's something, there's a better tree or a better plant or it needs to be a grassland, but you can get, when you're um, ignorant is such a, word for the what I'm trying to describe, but you just don't know any better that a tree might not be the best option. Yeah, so, I but agree. We're we're becoming more and more enlightened to these issues, and I know Fran and I, and then many of you are are taking a stand on a lot yeah. of this stuff too, and and trying to educate your peers and and people yeah. around you. And not saying it's a it's a it's a horrible choice, but there's lots of choices. You you have the ability to choose one of. 50 choices to do this mm-hmm. pick the best one that if if you're a little more enlightened and you have an idea of what works best or certain areas go with that choice or, or go with the one that helps you none of those choices are bad because you're still giving back yeah. you're you're still planting a tree yeah yeah i guess our main point is just it's a lot more complex than it sounds yes and that's what we wanted to talk about because of that and there's it was cited in um in that email was a. Uh, an article that I almost chose for today until she wrote that from the New York times also paywall. So I didn't, (laughs) didn't want to throw that out there again. I do it a lot, but, um, and it's saying how trees might not always be helping. And that that was the gist of that article is there's a lot of these tree plantings going on, but that's not always the best choice. And I feel bad saying this coming off of, our last episode because that's that's an excellent program. The ten million Keystone. But they did their research is, to say for this area, yeah, this, this is, is the best where option. we're getting the most bang for our buck and is achieving our goals. And it is the right choice for those. The, we say the the master gardener phrase, right plant, right place. A lot. Yeah. Those are the right plants for those places. Yeah. And, so it's just uh, some of these programs don't and choose that. They're they're not promoting monocultures. They want you to to do diverse. Mm-hmm. They wanted their partners to grow yeah. different species than what they were accustomed to. So they're. There was a lot of research and science behind that to make oh, that yeah. successful. Otherwise, they weren't going to be successful. Yeah. And that's a different program because you're not buying a pair of shoes or a mattress or a car, or, yeah. and then they're they're planting a tree. You're if you're they're giving trees away to specific people who can make a big big impact on the property. Yes, so, I agree. Yep. I agree. So did you did you peek at the take it or leave it? I did. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you're a little prepared. Uh, it's a, I would say very little. But, <laughs> All but right. Yes, so I for would, a take it or leave it, as we progress with this, I find it harder and harder to come up with a topic that's thought provoking mm-hmm. um, that we could deal with that our listeners would find relatable. So I, I was thinking about it, and, and this is something because I, I just happened to get an email from a customer referencing this. Yeah. And it's fertilizer, you know, something that's used very much in the, the nursery trade. Mm-hmm. 
But given that we always say that you don't want to amend soils or unnaturally promote something that it's not, like if you're choosing the right place and putting it the right mm-hmm. plant in the right place in the right soil, do you need fertilizer? My my answer is the same as always. It depends. But <laughs> realistically, no. It's um, not even that you don't need it, but using it will cause typically more weed issues. Yeah. If you have the right things there, the fertilizer will often hinder your native plant growth because you're boosting its competition. Yeah. The, f- the fertilizer is indiscriminate. It's not going to a particular thing. Yeah. It's usable. It's in the soil, and it's usable to everything around it. So a lot of times fertilizer, and one of the big trends I'm seeing with in nursery business now is um, to help with weed control is actually not putting fertilizer throughout the entire soil mix, but just putting it in a layer. Uh, Daryl Kobeski does this at Sunset yeah. Farmstead where he fills his pot three-quarters of the way up, puts a layer of fertilizer in, whatever they have measured out for their pot, fills the rest with soil because they found they don't need to do nearly as much weed control through herbicide or, or actually pulling weeds because the weeds don't have access to the fertilizer, only the plant does. Yeah. Um, so that's an option if you really wanted to give your plant fertilizer, but a lot of times your plant's not going to need it if it's in that right place. Now, if you have a plant that you really want, but it's not in the right place, that's where fertilizer can help. And that's why I say it depends. If you're really trying to give specific things a jump because they're not in quite the right place, and, that's where it can help. You know, and it's... Because if you have the right plant in the right place, they should be mm-hmm. getting the nutrients. Because not every plant needs. Yeah, they yep. some plants like nutrient poor soils. They don't want mm-hmm. those nutrients. But if you're unfamiliar with fertilizer, say you might be using it, not really know the ins and outs. There's three numbers typically mm-hmm. that give you the makeup. And those three numbers represent nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So the nitrogen gives you top growth. The phosphorus gives you root growth, and the potassium is more like a, like all around, like mm-hmm. maybe like blooms, yeah. shoot, webbling growth. So um, if you're going to use a fertilizer, you should know those um, – not format, but like uh, what those numbers mean. What those numbers mean, and typically you're going to find like a twenty twenty twenty. Yeah. So that means twenty parts um, nitrogen, twenty parts uh, potassium, or excuse me, twenty parts phosphorus, twenty parts potassium. potassium. But you might have like a, a thirteen thirteen ten. Yeah. Or so it's when you go to the garden center. Typically, you're just going to find a handful of formulations, but you can get. There's probably infinite possibilities between what you can pick out there. So I know a lot of nurseries will – and I'm a little torn too because if you're not using fertilizer in a nursery setting, you're taking longer to grow the plant Mm -hmm. and therefore it's costing more. Yeah. So if – but the the thing is to not over-fertilize it also. Mm -hmm. You don't want to promote unnatural growth. Yeah. But if you're giving it like enough starter fertilizer to kick it to go – Get it going, get it to be healthy, get it out the door so you can grow more native plants, get more native plants to more people. I don't see a lot of harm. But if, you, if you're if you doing it on an, in an unnatural amount so that they become fertilizer dependent, that as mm-hmm. soon as you put them – if, say, something, it's it's something that likes nutrient-poor soils, you're, you're overly pushing it and then you put it yeah. – you know, it's – you're creating almost a dependency sometimes – Unnaturally. I always think of um, 
the st- when I think about fertilizer, is the story uh, one of our customers, Tony Leonardo, uh, Doctor Tony Leonardo, yes. excuse me, uh, who works for O'Brien and Gear. He tells a story about this project on Daga Lake, which is just outside of Syracuse, heavily contaminated, and they basically restored a lot of the the edges of this pond uh, of this or of this lake, excuse me. But when they first planted it, they brought in all this topsoil and amended it with with tons of fertilizer and things. And the only thing that grew, of all the things they planted, the only thing that grew was something they didn't plant, and that was uh, cattails. Cattails <laughs> blew in. So they had to pull it all out and redo it. And what they found through some some small tests was oh, why the cattails took over is because they really thrive in nutrient-dense soils. So they were able to outcompete everything else because the nutrients were so good. Um, they made the soil too good. When you had those nutrient I don't want to say deficient, but poorer soils, the native soils that didn't have a lot of those those nutrients for the plants. Well, that's where you had your peltandra and your pontidaria and yeah. things that were those water, some semi-aquatic or, or emergent plants. That's where they really thrived yeah. because they weren't, all of a sudden the cattails weren't there sucking up all those nutrients and jumping past them and shading them out. Yeah. And the cattails couldn't keep up with these plants because they had evolved for those those certain systems. and cattails can be aggressive so, too. Oh, so yeah. not yeah. they're not invasive; they're they're native. But you know, and I, I believe that particular project it was a gypsum plant that was mm-hmm. on the lake that they yeah. had been they had been contaminating the lake for decades. Oh yeah. Um. So there was a lot of work there to do, but they they've done some incredible work mm-hmm. there. Um. But I know, I, and I'm drawing a blank on the gentleman's name who used to be with New York City Parks. Um. I could see his face. He's recently retired, but. Um, he did a lot of research on native soils and found out, you know, because a lot of New York City mm-hmm. were landfills, yeah, and that everywhere that they were restoring with landfills were where the invasives were at their worst, mm-hmm. and everywhere that it was native sand, only the native plants were living there, not the invasives, because it didn't have the nutrients they needed mm-hmm. to take take over, which is pretty basic. So, but but then you have fertilizer being put on plants. That don't necessarily – if it's – I could see if you have the wrong plant in the wrong place and it's you're, – you're giving it fertilizer. But I'm kind of torn. Like I see yeah. the necessity of it or the use of it if used sparingly and properly. Mm-hmm. But I think there's too much emphasis put on it sometimes because oh, yeah. it's a I, lot of the I wrong plants. I think it's kind of the gardener rule book is, oh, you need to fertilize your plants. When yeah. it comes to the native gardening, a lot of times you don't if you have the right things there. I've um, never put fertilizer on oh, any yeah. of my properties. Yeah, I haven't either. And but, I've had I've had a lot of good success. And where I didn't, maybe it wasn't the the perfect situation for that plant. Yeah, and I, I was going to joke user say, error. I haven't used any fertilizer either, but I don't know if I'd be using my garden as the the <laughs> highlight of a, of native plant gardening. So you know, it's I, I'm torn. I think um, you know if you're using like a like a slow release starter fertilizer for to get things going. You know, for success, because we we have talked about people having limited money, limited mm-hmm. resources. When you buy, make a big purchase, you want to make sure it's successful. Yep. Um, and sometimes, even under the the right plant, the right conditions, can struggle to get. You know, because you're still dealing with weather weather situations mm-hmm. that that might not be favorable. It could be a extremely wet spring or yep. a extremely dry summer, and it makes things difficult. Preferably. Personally, I I wouldn't use fertilizer on my property mm-hmm. as a gardener, based on yeah. native plants and what I'm trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Nurseries using it, I can completely see it because people yeah. are 
conditioned to want a plant to look a certain way mm-hmm. when they receive it. Now we we've talked about trying to change that paradigm and that perception that you want to see the leaves eaten, you want to see that it's contributing to the food web, and you wanted to know that it's healthy, you know, yeah. because you're growing that plant in an unnatural setting. Yeah. Like potting soil isn't natural, and we yeah. talked about that. A couple buzzes oh, yeah. ago when we yeah. talked about peat moss. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're growing this plant in its preferred soil. Yeah. You're not yeah. you could try to do that, but that's that's on a large scale that's very difficult mm-hmm. to scale that up. So I don't I don't have an answer for that. Oh, I do. I say I say no. no. I say right. I leave it. For right. well for home gardening and that's for home gardening I, I leave, it. I leave yeah. it. Yeah. Do you what about for a nursery setting? For nurseries, I take it. I don't. I don't think okay. you can. You need to speed up that growth pattern yeah. in the nursery, um, just to get things out on a schedule. Because it's so. not in a natural soil condition. Yeah. Some things are nutrient deficient, and and it shows mm-hmm. in the plant. Yep. So without using fertilizer, things wouldn't look healthy, or they wouldn't get out in the same time frame. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's got to be done sparingly. There's there's definitely nurseries oh, that yeah. over. Over fertilize, mm-hmm. push that edge yes. of what yep. you know. Because if you're over fertilizing before you know it, the shelf life of the product that you produced is mm-hmm. no longer any good. You could have something rooted way. You know, we talk about root bound pots, which sometimes is the amount of time that a plant is in a pot, but it also could be that it was over fertilized, cre- mm-hmm. creating that yeah. too. So, yep. So some some food for thought. Yeah. All right, so that is it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the buzz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants uh, Healthy Planet presented by, uh, presented by Pinelands Nursery. <laughs> Thank you to RJ Comer for our buzz theme, theme music. It wouldn't be the buzz without it. Uh, RJ has a new album out on iTunes. Uh, make sure you purchase it or stream it on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your music. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery and Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. Also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget the question and comment line. I was a little disappointed it was dead this week, but the the few previous episodes we've had a ton of callers and we appreciate all the questions and comments. You can call us at 215-346-6189. Uh, I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. You can ask a question or uh, leave a comment. When we play it on a future episode of The Buzz, we will uh, answer that question to the best of our knowledge or we'll phone a friend. Don't forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. It just – man, it just – every time I look, I'm like, oh, look, 20 new mm-hmm. twenty new members. And it's it's been wonderful. Conversations have oh, been yeah. great. Everyone's been polite, so keep that going. Uh, you can buy our Native Plants Healthy Planet t-shirts on our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a banner right across the top that says buy t-shirts here. Click on that. It takes you to our Teespring store. Um, there's some cool designs. I want to get some more up, but uh, it probably won't happen until the summer because <laughs> I've been overwhelmed with how much we've had to it's, do lately. If it's this crazy now, it's going to be yeah. absolute wild in, in mid-April. But the designs up there are still very cool and all the profits still go to supporting uh, some of the organizations that you've heard right here on w- or on Native Plants Healthy Planet. Um, we're probably going to get pretty close. I haven't checked in a while, but I'm assuming we're probably pretty close to doing another oh, donation. Soon. That's exciting. So, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, I'm so we'll keep you that. filled in on that. Who who is going to be the next recipient of uh, some money from our t-shirt sales? So um, you can listen to 
Native Plants Healthy Planet on www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. But you're probably going to listen to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume podcasts. You can find us across all those networks. And uh, if you're able to, I know you can on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. Um, Not only does it make Fran and I get the warm and fuzzies, but it also gets you in the running for – for that Yeti tumble that we're going to give out. And that's only if you leave the five-star view and give us a little write-up too. Yeah. So, yeah, and we're going to be doing that soon. Very, very soon. It seemed when we started in less than a month. This, it seemed so far away. Now it's right here. Less so, than a month. Yeah. So Last chance. All right, Tom, it's your secret. All right, so <laughs> what were we talking about before? <laughs> about me ta- about, oh, yeah, we were Fran, talking about a car trip. talking too much. Um, so, yeah, there was that, and that one year. I, I will say this. I, yeah. I Let me preface this. I'm well aware. Okay. I was, and I think I've, I, I think I've mentioned this. I was yeah. voted most talkative yeah. in high school. So this isn't like recent. This is my yeah. entire life. This, remember that year we went to, we had, um, Mance, which is the mid Atlantic nursery trade show. Then we had sense and we were like home for a day <laughs> and we had something else that was like right before, right after that too. I think, I think it was right before, but so it was like a two week span and I was only home for like a Saturday, and then we left Sunday. Yes. It was like we got home Friday night, left Saturday, and then I was home Saturday, and we left Sunday. And I remember coming home from Sense out in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm like, I don't know how Fran still has things to talk about. We still have like two hours in this drive home. Because that's a well, seven-hour drive each way it for was, us. And yeah, we drove. Yeah. We didn't fly. So that was yeah. 14 hours. So, yeah, hours. we had what well, we – so we – it's only two and a half hours down to Baltimore, but then we're there and we're staying in a hotel. We're in the trade show booth. So you're talking all day and then you're there and you're still like, you're hanging out and talking like until everyone goes to sleep. But then it's like, then you're back to back. So it's like basically like a two week span. And it was just like, it was Fran and I hanging out and, but by the end, I'm like, okay, we need to get home. I'm going to go a little fast. <laughs> Tom, you're doing 85 miles an hour. I don't know how safe that is. No, it's you know I there are times and I I know it sounds funny but there's times in the spring because I I make my living in sales mm-hmm. and you're you're talking and there's oh, yeah. like at a trade show or sometimes on the phone where I I I'm done for the day and I'm like all right I need to not mm-hmm. talk you yeah. know for a while like I need to not have anyone talk at me and I need mm-hmm. to yeah you know, I need some space yeah. or you know, what's helpful for me now is I actually have a longer drive. So mm-hmm. by the time I get home, like you kind of unwind yeah. that a little yep. bit and you just need that mindless. I'm almost in the, the opposite way with, with trade shows at least where it's uh, – I like get stuck in a mode. Because trade shows don't – and like talking to that many people doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not I'm, – I'm, we're both introverted yes. overall. Um, so I have to like kind of flick a switch to become in that trade show – I don't want to say salesman, but the talkative mode. Um, and then I'll like, when I get home, sometimes I struggle to turn it off and I'm like, Ooh, yeah. I'm like, I'm selling to you, to you right now. I'm selling to my wife right now. And I'm like, and she's like, okay, yeah, I know you're really excited because you just got home, but you need to tone it down a little well, bit. Agatha has said yeah. to me, like, don't give me sales Fran. Yeah. I don't want sales Fran. <laughs> you know, I want Fran Fran, yeah. you know, and it's, you know, I think part of it is like you, when you're introverted, you have to prepare yourself for it. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, all right, I'm going to be having a lot of conversations. I'm going to be having a lot of – because I'm also socially awkward 
and I feel I, I feel like as if I'm not good at small talk. Mm-hmm. I'm really not good at like chitter chatter. So I feel as though I have to control the conversation. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to feel awkward and say something inappropriate mm-hmm. or stupid. Yep. So I turn on sales fran and and go. Yep. But I don't know. I I'm I'm well aware. Everyone here has heard me talk way too much. You can ask any. <laughs> you could you could bring in any employee here and sit them down and they will share their secret about when they were like, oh my god, I can't get Fran to shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just we were in the car, so it's not like you uh, couldn't I can't leave. Say, I can't say I'm busy or <laughs> I gotta like, go home. Oh, I gotta take this call. No, I'm, Tom's we, slowly turning, like <laughs> speeding up and turning the music up little by little by little, hoping I get the hit. Uh, but yeah, that must make you feel. It took two weeks to, to get to that that's, point. But. That's impressive. Yeah. That's impressive. I've lost. I've lost relationships in less than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up. Thanks, everyone. I'm Tom, and I am Spanky. Thanks again, everyone. <laughs> I am Fran. Uh, coming up, we have. Uh, we, we we haven't finalized the next one. We we're hoping that the guest has time for us mm-hmm. next week. Uh, otherwise, it will be a surprise to us as well. Uh, who we have coming up? Uh, thank you for joining us. We will see you again that next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.